Uh, in honor of the holiday, I will not be holding office hours this Friday. Uh, I've enjoyed seeing you who've come, and I hope right after break you'll come again. Uh, but I don't think there are going to be many people around uh, tomorrow, and there's certainly not very many uh, today. So, But we're going to go on anyway. Great. Can't forget Bismarck. Nowadays, we tend to use the term nation and state interchangeably, uh, which of course leads us uh, to considerable problems, uh, and particularly when we think of the balls up uh, in the nation state of Iraq, and where are the Iraqis, they all seem to be either Sunnis, Shias, or Kurds. Uh, similarly with Yugoslavia, everybody suddenly seems shocked when Slovenes and Croats and Serbs and Bosnian Muslims didn't all feel Yugoslavian together. And yet, somehow or other, commentators tend to look at these uh, situations as weird anomalies, exceptions to the normal course of things. Uh, the lights can go on, thanks. But we shouldn't think of these as exceptions. Rather, it allows us to remember how very recent the nation state as a form of political organization really is. Political scientists, until very recently, have been in the habit of calling Germany and Italy late unifiers and explaining a lot of the pathologies that we see in these two countries in the first half of the 20th century by their lateness. But I think that's just buying into the nationalist myth. The nationalist myth is that there's some objective reality out there called nations. There is an Italian nation, or was, and there was a German nation. And it wasn't normal. It was in some way unhealthy that it took so long for the Germans to get together in a single state, the Italians to get together. After 1991, however, uh, even political scientists have come around to a more nuanced way of thinking. After 1991, we suddenly saw nations like Ukraine or Slovakia, which at least for the last thousand years had always lived within states with other names like Lithuania, Poland, Russia, Hungary, Austria. And suddenly these nations popped up overnight claiming statehood, and even political scientists began to recognize how profoundly contingent that is how dependent on politics, this clothing of a nation with the institutions and apparatuses of a state really is. And even if we wanted to concede that there's something natural and objective about the separate, different nations of the world, we'd have to ask ourselves, what is it? What is it that makes a nation a nation? Is it language? Well, if it's language, then I guess you'd have to call North Americans late unifiers. Because the last time I looked, the 10 provinces and three territories of English-speaking Canada have not gotten around yet to unifying with the United States of America. There are, or were until very recently, uh, 2 million Germans in, German, uh, in, in Russian-speaking Russia. They're called Volga Germans. Boy, these colors are awful. Can we change? 
Can this be fixed? This is nothing like the colors that I see looking at my computer. And if the colors can't be fixed, these maps are going to be worthless. Do you think there's anything that can be done? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, if you look over there, all the blue dots, they're sort of blue, whoops, are Germans. Now here is Germ. let's see, is this Germany? Yeah, here is Germany, but here are all these Germans dotted around here, there, hither, and yon. Two million Volga Germans, a nation that is actually bigger than Slovenia or Estonia, both members of the EU now, uh, almost as big as Latvia and Lithuania. If we look at Transylvania, which is sort of hard to see here uh, on this map now, it's part of Romania now, but Germans and Hungarians have been living there longer than people of European descent have been living in North America. So should uh, they have states of their own, these Hungarians and Germans, or should they be united to Germany and Hungary? And actually, come to think of it, who is it that's defining a language anyway? Objectively speaking, a linguist should be able to find uh, less difference, I would say, between Dutch and Plattdeutsch, which means low German. Uh, the, the language, you could say, spoken up here in Hamburg, uh, less difference between this language and what's spoken over in the Netherlands than between Plattdeutsch and what is spoken down here in Bavaria, and that star, by the way, these two stars should be red. Just imagine that. <laughs> okay, so here's a riddle for you. What's the difference between a dialect and a language? A language is a dialect with an army. A common language is only a common language because some state defines it as the common language and enforces it in the post offices, in the law courts, and certainly in the school systems. So language is really a very tricky thing around which to base a nation. If we can't identify a nation by its common language, how about a history of common? Well, if that's what you're going to use, you can't bring together the Italians. As we know from the Renaissance on, until they started being ruled by others, they were always fighting each other. And you could say the German states are no different. Well, what about geography? Perhaps that's a help. Uh, it works for Italy, more or less. Uh, perhaps you could say it works for Ireland. But most nations are not peninsulas or I islands. And the German states had no natural boundaries. And you could say very few countries do. Now, I mentioned in my last lecture the notion of the anthropologist Benedict Anderson that nations uh, are imagined communities. And that seems right to me. As long as people are imagining themselves together, then you could say they are. Others have defined nationalism as pooled self-esteem. I feel good because you are good and big and great, and we both share our mutual greatness. Now, in the middle of the 19th century, Two men, Camillo Cavour, the Prime Minister of Piedmont, and Otto von, von Bismarck, uh, the Prime Minister of Prussia, created two nation states. They did this through a series of war, 
And by doing it, they transformed Central Europe. They ended Central Europe's role as, for the most part, a non-player in European power politics, a kind of spongy, non-national region in the heart of Europe, which had for a long time, uh, a century and a half at least, or more perhaps you might say, performed a kind of balancing function in the international system. And in place of this porous, multicultural, polycentric region, and I say polycentric because it wasn't just Austria and Prussia there, there was Hanover, Saxony, Württemberg, Mecklenburg, Baden, uh, and a bunch of little German states too numerous and tiny to name. In, instead of this kind of porous, multicultural region, let's see, there we are, you can see those you can see now what I was trying to show you before. We get a much more consolidated set of states, two states particularly, uh, Germany uh, here and Italy here, uh, with some claim to being homogeneous at any rate, and certainly with clear, hard boundaries. So we go from this kind of messy Central European situation here with division and therefore no power to two rather important uh, states. Now, this reconfiguration of Europe was not the inevitable result of some kind of awakening of the Italian people or awakening of the German people. Cavour's native land, the kingdom of Piedmont, uh, otherwise known as Sardinia, uh, it did have an Italian ruling family, but its home base was what you would say is France, a lot of it. Uh, Cavour's mother's language, and therefore his, the first language he learned was French. And what happened here is the kingdom of Sardinia, or Piedmont, simply conquered the other Italian states, Tuscany, Lombardy, Venetia, and Rome. Uh, they did this with France's aid. They did it against the armies of Austria. They did it between 1859 and 70. And once, and then come a series of plebiscites in the south, but by then uh, the result is a foregone conclusion. Once Cavour had unified Italy, he said, <clears throat> uh, or at least one of his sidekicks said, we have created Italy. It is now necessary to create Italians. Uh, and how are you going to do that? Well, the army's going to help, and the school system's going to help. Now, Bismarck was even less moved by national, that is, uh, feeling for fellow Germans a consideration and sentiment. He felt himself to be Prussian, and that's the dark blue up there, uh, uh, rather than German. And he wants to find the, a Bavarian, and Bavaria is also a, a state in Germany, it's Let's see, down here. He wants to find a, a Bavarian, just as German as a Prussian, as, quote, a cross between an Austrian and a human being. And, and of course, the Austrians are also German. So. so let's run through a little thought experiment. Take the Middle East today. In the 19th century, this area was often loosely referred to as Araby. And that term was about as specific then as Germany was before Bismarck. That is, it meant a region where people spoke and wrote Arabic. 
just as Germany meant where, place where people spoke and wrote German. Now, was Araby a nation? Is it a nation? No, it's not a nation. Why not? Well, you could say because there's lots of different states in it. Uh, but that's the Middle East, right? Germany had lots of different states. Consider Saddam Hussein in 1990. He invades Kuwait. If the great powers had not reacted and not gone to war in 1991, and Saddam had been allowed to stay in Kuwait, right there, uh, he might have wrapped himself in the mantle of Arab nationalism and have gone on to take other Arabic-speaking states, the Yemen's uh, Oman, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Saudi Arabia. And ultimately, he might have called the whole thing the Arab Empire, just as Prussia, after conquering most of the tiny little German states and arm-twisting most of the rest, called itself, between 1871 and 1919, the German Empire. If that had happened, Saddam would, I think, have gone down in history, not as the conqueror of Araby, but as the unifier of Araby, as if there's already something out there, an Arab state in waiting, just sitting around hoping to be unified. Just as if those Yemenis and Jordanians and Syrians and Lebanese obviously possessed a common de destiny and only needed him to come along to unify them. All right, you see the parallel here. For Saddam, substitute Bismarck. For Iraq, substitute Prussia. Uh, both of them medium-sized, upstart states, but with big armies. Iraq, in fact, in 1990, had the fourth largest army in the world. Now, what is the difference? The biggest difference, I would argue, is one thing only, and that is the response of the great powers. Because the, power, the rest of the powers in the region and the world allied against him, Saddam failed in expanding Iraq, unifying Arabs and he became labeled an upstart and an aggressor. Because the great powers were asleep at the wheel, you could say, Bismarck succeeded in expanding Prussia, and the verdict is he is the founding father of Germany. If Saddam had succeeded, his new Arab nation state, which he might well have called the Arab Empire, would certainly have included plenty of non-Arabs, for example, Kurds. And the Kurds might have seen themselves as a nation whose aspirations to statehood were thwarted, would be even less hopeful than today. But hey, Bismarck's empire also contained minorities. It had lots of Poles. It had French. It had even Danes. So let's carry the parallel even further. If Saddam had succeeded, he probably would not have been able to have included all the Arab-speaking world. He probably wouldn't have even attempted to annex Egypt. Too big, too populous, too powerful, too ancient in its independent traditions. And Egypt might well have fought to prevent Saddam's unifications. But if it hadn't had international support, it would probably have lost. But the result, if Saddam had unified all of Arabia, but with Egypt fighting the other way, is that people would stop pretty soon thinking of Egypt as Arab anymore. 
political scientists, historians, perhaps even Egyptians themselves, would start calling them Egyptians and stop including them in Arab. Okay, for Egypt, substitute Austria. And the parallel really is complete. So you should remember, a nation state is almost inevitably both more than the people who speak that language that gives the nation state its name, and less. Now, I don't have time to talk about Italian unification today. You'll have to rely on your textbook and your sections for that. I'm going to concentrate on how German unification came about. A great modern German historian begins his multi-volume work on German history with the following lines. In the beginning was Napoleon. Now, I think you could probably see why he begins this way. It was Napoleon who destroyed the Holy Roman Empire that had been a kind of trans-state organizing structure for Central Europeans for centuries. And it was Napoleon who begins the process of consolidation. He gets rid of the various prince bishops. He parcels out the very smallest of the German principalities among the bigger ones. So that in the end, by the time he is defeated in 1815, instead of approximately 300 German states, there are only 39. In 1815, the great powers who defeated Napoleon met in Vienna, at the Congress of Vienna, and then they began to reassemble the map of Europe that Napoleon had so vigorously and bloodily redrawn. And what's important for our story is that they took the area that had once been the Holy Roman Empire and created from it what they now called the German Confederation. And it was a grouping similar to our 13 colonies under the Articles of Confederation. Basically, all of the colored spots on this map, except Alsace-Lorraine, uh, are members of the German Confederation. 39 member states who agree never to go to war against each other again, to deliberate on all common issues in a forum called the Diet, to which each of them is going to send an ambassador, sort of like a security council, you could say. Now, it's true that even at this time, 1815, there are certain groups in the German population, university students especially, uh, artists like Caspar David Friedrich, uh, writers, lawyers, some writers, some lawyers, and some liberal noblemen and civil servants, among whom the idea of nationalism is spreading. The idea that since Germans have a common language and they argued a common culture, they belong together in something better than this collection of states. Uh, something that would be more powerful, because after all, power is one of the things nationalists really do want their nation to have. This is an idea spreading at the same time among Greeks and Serbs and Italians and Poles and Irish and Hungarians of the same groups of the population. For the majority of people in all of these countries, nationalism was a pretty foreign ideology. But it becomes trendy among opinion makers, as we see in the Greek War of Independence. However, there's one big difference separating Germans and German nationalists 
from uh, the situation among the Greeks, the Serbs, the Italians, the Irish, the Poles, and the Hungarians. Can you think what it is? Guy. That is excellent, but it doesn't go far enough. Guy has said they're not ruled by the Ottoman Empire. Absolutely right. They're not, and that's an important difference. But the Irish aren't ruled by the Ottoman Empire. So keep thinking. It's along that line. You're, you're almost there. Germans are the only ones that are ruled only by Germans. So what's the big problem, right? They're, the Greeks are ruled by Ottomans. The Italians are ruled by Austrians. The Irish are ruled by English. The Poles are ruled by three different countries. You know, what's their problem? Well, the nationalists saw in the division of the German people among 39 different sovereignties, a humiliation. Why? They felt that it made Germans weak in the face of their more unified neighbors. And by the way, this map is to show you that the German Confederation here cuts through the boundaries of its two most important states. Okay, so here, here is what's bothering them. They look at that map. Here's big Russia. Here's powerful France. And what's Germany? You can't even see some of those states. They're so small. They're so insignificant. And the result, they think, is that for centuries, Germany has been used as the battleground as the titans fight it out against each other in the Thirty Years' War, but also in the Napoleonic Wars. And it must be said, and this was even more humiliation, sometimes with the full cooperation of this and that German state, as they saw in these battles, a chance to grab more territory from their neighbor for themselves. So for the intellectuals in Germany, national unification of some sort or another was a matter of self-respect. But there are three intractable obstacles to any hope for German unification. First of all is the strength of what Germans call particularism. I think 19th century Americans would think of it as sectionalism or states' rights. What do I mean by that? Well, for one thing, this is, this is a pretty good map of some of Germany, but this, these little green spots, there are too many states in there for them to draw. And, of course, Austria shouldn't be green. It should have a different color because it's not the same as Russia, and it is German. Okay, here are all these states, 39 states. None of the rulers in these states wanted to give up being king or prince or duke in order to be part of someone else's country? Does King Abdullah of Jordan want a united Arab Arabia? Does uh, President Bashar al-Assad of Syria want to be submerged in a bigger Arab Union? No. But it's not just the rulers. Many ordinary people had their whole livelihoods invested in this existing political order. Each of these states has its own bureaucracy, its own judiciary, its own army. How many of these jobs would be around if you actually had unification? Now, let's say, look at the armies. You've got 39 commanders-in-chief. Unified Germany, only one of those guys can have the job. Now, among the commonest people, the artisans and the peasants, they're still the largest groups in the population, there's a lot of real sentiment for keeping their own local traditions, their own laws, their own ways their own king. And there's also hostility to the foreigner. 
And if you've done your reading this year, you know that out there in Mecklenburg, the farmer can consider a foreigner somebody from Berlin. Here's Berlin. Here's Mecklenburg. Not that far away, right? And this, uh, this uh, city man on the farm was written 20 years after Bismarck unified Germany. The revolutions of 1848 had briefly produced an all-German parliament known as the Frankfurt National Assembly. It had tried to create a common German citizenship, but it had been defeated by this entrenched localism, the common people, as well as uh, the armies of the rulers who didn't want to give up on things. So here we have particularism, a major obstacle. A second big obstacle to unification is religious division between Catholics and Protestants. Germany, you know, is the home of the Reformation, but it was the one major region in Europe where neither the Catholics nor the Protestant side won and won big. So about half the population of the German-speaking world is Lutheran and Calvinist, and the other half is Catholic. But they're not living all mixed up together because, as you know from the Peace of Augsburg on, the rule had been monarch prince chooses religion and everybody has to follow suit. Now, with 1815 and the new order of the German Confederation, this has changed and there is tolerance for everybody introduced. Uh, but people are not going to just move. And by and large, the religious map stays very much the way it has before. Catholics and Protestants tend not to be living together except in the big cities, and so they can continue to cherish the oddest prejudices about each other. And uh, perhaps this doesn't mean they want uh, necessarily to join together. Okay, well, perhaps uh, we shouldn't expect Germans to all sort of get together and have a love in and create a unified country. Uh, an obvious alternative to unification by consent was that one German state simply expand and absorb the rest. And in the 19th century, uh, this method of unification was known as the Piedmontese solution after Cavour's state, Piedmont, up there, which gradually, simply uh, conquered and annexed the other states in Italy. But of course, in Germany, that raises the question, who's going to be the German Piedmont? And that, of course, brings me to the third obstacle to unification, and that's the rivalry between Prussia and Austria for leadership. These are the two biggest states. Uh, Austria here is green, Prussia is the dark blue, but note <clears throat> Austria, this part, that former map of the German Confederation doesn't give you any sense of how powerful Austria is. All of this mustard-colored stuff, including down there in Italy, is Austrian. In fact, you can get a better sense of the whole Austrian Empire that way. Now, Austria had tradition on its side. The Habsburgs had been emperors of the Holy Roman Empire. But the Austrians had two great obstacles to any desire they might have had <clears throat> to be the leader of all of Germany. First of all, it was Catholic, and most German nationalists, uh, not most Germans, but most German nationalists were strongly Protestant. Worse, though, the Habsburg monarchy was not an entirely 
German state. It was the Habsburg dynasty was still committed to their Hungarian, Slavic, and remaining Italian territories. So any German unification by Austria wouldn't have looked like a unified German state uh, so much as a government by a multinational corporation whose 60% of whose interests you could say were somewhere else. Prussia, therefore, was the, in some ways the obvious candidate. Economically, it was the most industrialized, and though it did have three million Poles, whoops, living out there, this area here, uh, German nationalists conveniently forgot about them most of the time. It was considered a lot more homogeneous than Austria, and it was, really. Compared to Austria also, Prussian society was more modern. There was more free enterprise. Uh, you could say that Iraq, many people were saying about Iraq as late as 2001, that it was the most modern of all the Arab uh, states. But here's a big obstacle. Prussia was not a popular country among fellow Germans. It was associated with militarism, particularly the militarism of Frederick the Great. And... Everyone knew that any step Prussia might take to expand at the expense of its smaller neighbors here would immediately be met by Austrian resistance, probably with force. And any war between Austria and Prussia probably wouldn't stop there, would probably draw in the great powers, because the great powers of Europe had an interest in preserving this equilibrium, which meant the center of Europe, was pretty porous and squashy and powerless. And so this brings me <coughs> to the fourth obstacle to unification. We've got particularism, we've got religious divisions, we've got rivalry between the two major German states. But the fourth is the more or less determined opposition of all the powers of Europe no less strong for being largely silent. They were opposed to either Prussia or Austria getting too big and too powerful. And any consolidated German nation state in the center of Europe would, they felt, put an intolerable strain on the balance of power system, the European equilibrium. And the Germans were almost twice as numerous as the French, and, in fact, they were the most numerous people in Europe except uh, the Russians. The rest of Europe, and not only the small states, but I would say particularly England, France, and most of all Russia, could tolerate German unification only with the greatest sense of apprehension and insecurity. And I think, once again, our Arab parallel. If all the states on the Arabian Peninsula should suddenly join uh, suddenly, within a period of 10 years, a single state? Is Turkey going to be happy? It's not Arab. Is Iran going to be happy? It's not Arab. A spongy zone of intermediary and small states in Central Europe was the necessary prerequisite for international stability, so thought the great powers. And I think a lot of historians think they were right. So it's clear that if either Prussia or Austria began to act like Piedmont and expand beyond its present borders, it should have to face not only its German rival, 
leading the United German Confederation against it, but also England, France, and especially Russia. Consequently, I think if you took a poll as late as 1850, the idea that all the German states would soon be unified in a single empire looked about as likely as the unification of all of the Arab Middle East looks to us today. And I say that uh, with the notion in mind that if 10 years from now we see something different, it's already happened before in just that short a period, in even shorter periods. From 1850, within the next two decades, by 1870, precisely this kind of unification was substantially accomplished. So what allows this to happen? Two things. First of all is a Crimean War. And I don't have time to go into the origins. It's a very interesting but complicated situation. Basically, Russia was provoked by France and got into another one of its perennial wars with the Ottoman Empire. And much to Russia's surprise, England and France came to the aid of the Turks, of all people. And consequently, Russia was defeated in 1856. And this was absolutely crucial for developments in Germany and for the whole balance of power in Europe. Because what this did was essentially put Russia out of the picture militarily for quite some time. For the next decade, Russia becomes completely absorbed in domestic reforms, serf emancipation and all kinds of modernization. They took this military defeat as a sign that they had to catch up. And I think it is no accident that the reunification in modern times of two modern German states, capitalist West Germany and communist East Germany, which happened in 1989-90, was based on an absolutely parallel <coughs> geopolitical situation. The subtraction of Russia from the European balance of power because of Russia's then preoccupation with domestic reform. I'm referring to Gorbachev's perestroika, which I hope you, you know something about, or at least know that it existed. It is inconceivable, I think, that any Russian state in a position to have enforced its own great power interests would ever have allowed the unification of East and West Germany to take place in 1990. Okay, so what we have is a temporary, temporary, subtraction of Russia from European affairs after it loses the Crimean War. And this provides a kind of opening for some kind of rearrangement of Central Europe. But it's only an opening. The creation of a unified German state required far more than the reunification of 1989-90, a statesman with the genius to take advantage of this opening. The ability to expand his own state without tipping his hand in a way that would indicate to England and France they better intervene. And they were certainly capable of doing so. Now, such a statesman might very well not have appeared. There's no inherent reason why he did appear. And many nations that we've hardly heard of might have been unified before now if they had had such a one. There's no inherent reason also why this brilliant statesman, when he arose, should have appeared in Prussia rather than Austria. But in fact, such a statesman did appear 
and he did appear in Prussia, and his name was Otto von Bismarck, the Cavour of Germany. So I need to digress a bit uh, to uh, fill you in on this man. Bismarck came from the Prussian gentry, known as the Junkers, and indeed he came from a family that dated back to the 12th century. That is, his family tree uh, was older than the Hohenzollern dynasties, which uh, began in Prussia only in 1415. This allowed him to bear very much to consider the royal family newcomers. Now, Bismarck was a giant for his day. He was six foot four, huge in those days, weighed about 272 pounds, and he was a man with giant appetites. He was a chain smoker, and he actually had a cigar holder designed for him that would allow him to smoke three cigars at once. He bragged about drinking six bottles of wine at one sitting. He ate vast quantities. He would start a lunch out with 20 buttered hard-boiled eggs, washed down with a bottle of port, and that was just the first course. Naturally, this had appalling penalties in the form of indigestion, uh, sleeplessness, and ultimately gout. But Bismarck was also a man of giant talents. And for a while, it looked as if there was no respectable career that could contain his energies. His parents, bless their hearts, planned for him a nice career in the Prussian bureaucracy. He tried it out briefly. He couldn't stand the carefully regulated chain of command and protocol. Whenever I want a spoonful of soup, I have to ask eight asses for permission, he said. Uh, the Prussian official is only a member of an orchestra, and I want to play only music I like myself, or no music at all. So he resigned forthwith and basically just hung around the countryside in his estate doing almost nothing. In 1848, Bismarck's position was on the far right of the Prussian political spectrum. His views were so far out that even fellow conservatives considered him on the lunatic fringe. And it was partly in order to keep him, he's kind of a troublemaker, out of domestic politics that the King of Prussia, uh, after the revolution of 1848 had been crushed, decided to appoint Bismarck, then aged 35, as Prussia's ambassador to the reconstituted diet of the German Confederation. This is a really important position. Bismarck had no diplomatic experience. He was a late bloomer if there ever was one. Yes, Guy. Well, he was a rabble. He was going around making trouble. He was extremely bright. He was had lots of important friends who were also sort of pulling strings for him. But the Prussian king did not want this man in Berlin because the king, though a conservative, thought this guy on the far right was a troublemaker. So get him out. You know, maybe he can do some good in Frankfurt. At the Diet, Bismarck burned under the fact that as ambassador for Prussia, he was technically lower in status than the ambassador for Austria. Austria had a kind of permanent presidency of the, of the Diet, like the Security Council presidency, you might say. And Bismarck, who hadn't been thinking about these things before, quickly developed the idea that, hey, Central Europe doesn't have room for both Prussia and Austria. War is going to come sooner or later. Now, war is against the law in the German Confederation. They've agreed never to fight each other. The last thing the King of Prussia wanted 
in this age of revolution when he's more worried about keeping the throne, was to go to war with another conservative power. Uh, he wasn't a German nationalist. And like all conservative monarchs, he felt monarchs really should stick together. Otherwise, the liberals, the revolutionaries, the nationalists are going to use any division to grab power for themselves. So uh, the king noted what Bismarck was doing and had Herr Ambassador Bismarck transferred where he couldn't pick a fight with Austria, sent him first to St. Petersburg, ambassador to Russia, then to Paris, ambassador to France. And so Bismarck got the perfect diplomatic education in the major European capitals. Everywhere he went, he shut off his mouth, told the blatant truth to the other diplomats about what his future intentions might be. But this truth was so outrageous, no one ever took him very seriously. Now it's necessary to turn briefly to Prussia's domestic situation, which along with the Crimean War taking taking uh, the Russians out of the picture is another major um, structural factor allowing German unification to take place. In the 1860s, we see a political struggle resulting in the change of direction of Prussia's foreign policy. And the background is a change in rulers. Prussia's king, Frederick William IV, had spent his entire uh, reign teetering on the brink of mental uh, breakdown. And in 1859, he finally crossed over that brink and had to be removed from office. He was replaced by his brother William, first as regent and then when Frederick William died in 1861 as king, King William I. Now, William was not an especially reactionary man. But he had never expected to be king, and he had trained himself for a military career. Consequently, the army was the apple of his eye. He wanted to reform the Prussian army, expand it, increase the length of service. By a year, he thought a three-year military service was necessary to turn a sloppy civilian into a politically reliable, tough soldier. But William couldn't just go ahead and make these changes because to expand the army and to increase the service by a year costs a lot of money. And one of the gains Prussian liberals had made as a result of the revolution of 1848 was Prussia got a parliament. And now every new tax in Prussia had to have parliamentary approval. Well, you know from England in the 17th century, this can cause problems. The Prussian parliament, in fact, was willing to go along with expanding the standing army. But they were opposed to the extension of military service to three years. They thought that would create the militarization of civilians. Uh, consequently, they refused to pass the military budget. And the result was a deadlock between the king and the parliament. Who has the final say-so? Who's got sovereignty? And this issue was clouded because the constitution that Prussia had acquired after the revolution of 1848 gave the power of the purse to parliament. All taxes have to be voted by parliament. But the same constitution said, and I quote, the king is sovereign. So this situation is very similar to that of England's after 1660 when the Stuarts are restored. And you could say uh, up until 1688. Uh, and you could say it's very similar to con contemporary impasses we see between Congress 
and uh, the presidency today. Who's got the final say? It was clear to everyone concerned that if the Prussian parliament was able to assert itself successfully now, it would get control of the army. And the king would become, sooner or later, a figurehead, just as it had been in England, a matter of time. So this isn't really just an army versus civilian taxpayer conflict. It's a constitutional conflict of great magnitude. Now, who does the Prussian parliament represent? All Prussian males could vote. But the franchise was geared to over-represent the people who paid the most taxes. Consequently, we can conclude that this oppositional liberal parliament represents the bulk of the taxpayers of the entire kingdom. The king kept dissolving and holding new elections, and each time the voters returned the liberals in even greater and greater numbers. So it was clear the deadlock couldn't go on forever, and this was the kind of conflict that had brought a revolution to France in 1830 and again in 1848. Prussia, too, looked like it was on the brink of revolution. And there appeared to be only two courses of action. The ultra-royalist reactionaries urged William to suspend the Constitution. In effect, that would be a coup d'etat. The king himself was more inclined to the other direction, abdicating. And that would have changed the course of Prussian and therefore German history because the king's son, the crown prince, was a convinced liberal and he had already gone on record as siding with the parliament. Had William abdicated and his son become king, the power of the Prussian army, its independence from the legislature, the power of the Junker aristocracy behind it would have been broken. Now, none of the reactionary aristocrats around the throne was willing to defy Parliament and run the risk of tearing up the Constitution and triggering perhaps a revolution. But the war minister, in desperation, thought he knew someone who would do that. So he telegraphed his crony in Paris, Bismarck, Bismarck as ambassador. The telegram simply had two sentences, delay dangerous, make haste. He knew Bismarck was reading the newspapers and knew what was going on. So Bismarck got the train and came to Berlin with the full intention of putting through the king's army reform with or without Parliament's approval. And it can be argued that it was Bismarck alone who prevented the accession of the liberal crown prince in 1862 because there was no other conservative around who was willing to risk defying Parliament and convinced the king to tear up his abdication document and remain on the throne. It took a lot of courage for the king to do this. Kings have long memories, and this particular king is thinking about Charles I. You know what happened to him, Stuart. And he's thinking of Louis XVI, the Bourbon. You know what happened to him. That was less than 70 years uh, earlier. That is when he was basically uh, not yet born, but almost. Bismarck appealed to the king's military honor, he promised that if things went badly, he would die by the throne himself. You know, that's great comfort. Perhaps there wasn't really any danger of a guillotine in the mid-19th century Prussia, but there's no doubt Bismarck was putting his own career on the line. Because if old William died and the crown prince took over, Bismarck's days in high office would be over as well. 
The king is already 65 years old in 1862 when Bismarck arrived. So that day couldn't have looked very far off. Who would have known that biological accident would keep this old man alive until age 91, 1888, at which point the liberal crown prince was already dying of throat cancer. Bismarck then proceeded to change the course of European history as much as any other single individual except Napoleon and Hitler. He has four basic achievements. First, to defy and then co-opt the liberal opposition in Prussia, to end Parliament's bid for sovereignty and thus ensure the dominance of the crown and his own aristocratic class, the Junkers, for the next 50 years. Second, to create a German nation state, to unify all the German states except Austria in a single German empire. Third, to institutionalize Prussian dominance within this Germany by turning most of Central Europe, or at least so it looked to contemporaries, this big area with all these different traditions, some of them quite liberal, into an enlarged authoritarian Prussia. And fourth, to catapult Prussia from the fifth and least of the great powers of Europe, Russia, France, Britain, Austria, Prussia at the bottom, to the top of the heap, now under the name the German Empire. How did he do this? Well, the first thing he did was to exacerbate the crown's conflict with parliament. He made no effort to resolve it. Why not? He knew he needed this crisis atmosphere to make the king utterly dependent on him. William would have to go along with Bismarck's other plans, so he felt. Therefore, Bismarck's had the court jail the most vociferous liberal deputies for their subversive quote-unquote speeches. When Parliament refused to pass his army budget, he simply had the taxes collected anyway. What were people going to do about it? Go on a tax strike? Some of the deputies talked about a tax strike, a few localities tried it, but it never really got off the ground. Why not? Well, a revolution is a difficult thing to carry off when you have an unruly population. But the Prussians were a deeply law-abiding people. And as Lenin once said about the Prussian Social Democratic Party, which professed to be revolutionary, if the Prussian Social Democrats ever decide to storm the railways, they will all line up and buy platform tickets first. <laughs> so much of history is a question of will, and it's clear. There's nothing particularly ingenious about Bismarck's solution to the constitutional conflict. Just no other conservative aristocrat dared to do it. They felt stuck between the unpalatable alternatives of a coup from above using the army, abolishing parliament, tearing up the constitution, with a risk, therefore, of triggering a bloody revolution, or giving in and abdicating, moving toward a government like England's. Bismarck didn't abolish the parliament. He didn't tear up the constitution. He simply ignored them for a while. When the deputies protested, he mocked them by famously declaring, the great questions of the day are not decided by votes and parliamentary majorities, but by blood and iron. However, force was never the only arrow in Bismarck's quiver. 
He also began a propaganda campaign against Parliament. He argued that since the franchise was weighted towards property holders, these deputies spoke only for the rich. The crown, on the other hand, represented all the people, the silent majority. And Bismarck actually really believed that the masses were naturally conservative. So he very conspicuously opened up conversations with the famous socialist leader, Ferdinand LaSalle. LaSalle himself uh, wasn't averse to the idea of a kind of alliance between the crown and the poor against the wealthy bourgeoisie represented in the Prussian parliament. So he's going around getting photo ops with socialist agitators, but he knew that wasn't really going to solve anything. To solve the Prussian constitutional conflict, he needed international success. And he achieved this through three wars. The first, 1864, against Denmark for Schleswig-Holstein. The second, in 1866, against Austria and the entire rest of the German Confederation in order to annex the German states north of the River Main, and the third, 1870, against France, uh, to bring in German states south of the Main. Three successful wars in less than 10 years against the conservative, peace-loving inclinations of his own king and without causing an international conflagration. This is a tour de force. But it has to be said from the outset that all of Bismarck's opportunities were created by others. Take the short victorious war against Denmark in 1864 over Schleswig-Holstein. Schleswig-Holstein, two duchies that form the neck of the Danish peninsula. Holstein was a member of the German Confederation, yet it was constitutionally joined, its own constitution, for eternity to Schleswig, which was not a member of the German Confederation. The populations of both duchies were mostly German-speaking, but there's a considerable Danish minority, and their ruler was the King of Denmark. So you see it up there. Now, with the rise of both German and Danish nationalism in the 19th century, ethnic conflict and sometimes even violence began to break out in these duchies between Danes and Germans. In 1848, this had led briefly to a war between Denmark and Germany, but then the great powers who were looking out this time intervened. And in 1852, the powers had engineered the Treaty of London, in which all the powers of Europe agreed that the status quo must be preserved. But in 1863, the King of Denmark was on his deathbed, and he decided to promulgate a new constitution which gave in to the demands of Danish nationalists and simply incorporated these two duchies into Denmark, into the Danish state. That would mean that the German majority there would suddenly become a minority uh, overruled by Danes. Germans everywhere were furious, and Bismarck put himself at the forefront of public opinion, not by bemoaning the fate of the poor Germans in Schleswig-Holstein, that would have been a nationalist argument. If he had done that, the great powers would have got the wind up and realized something was afoot. No, 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 no. He insisted that treaties were being broken here. The Treaty of London, sanct uh, a, sancti uh, a sanctified treaty. And, of course, this is a conservative sac sacred cow in these days and age. 
And so, so successful was Bismarck in convincing the world that all he wanted to do was to preserve international agreements that when he took pressure to war against Denmark, he succeeded actually in luring Austria into that war as well on Prussia's side. Now, look at the map, how stupid this is of Austria. Here is Prussia very close to the scene of the crime. Here is Austria way down there. Uh, Denmark was easily conquered. It's a flat country. It had some fortifications, but it was no match for the Austrians and the Prussians. Um, contrary to the expectations of the populations of Schleswig-Holstein, these two duchies did not become independent states within the German Confederation. Instead, Bismarck got Austria to agree that they would rule it jointly in something called a condominium. Although Prussia would be mainly responsible for Schleswig, Austria for Holstein. Austria soon looked at the map and realized it got the short end of the stick. Look, Austria is stuck way down here. And of course, one of the things separating it from up there is the huge Alps. It couldn't exercise any effective influence in these territories, but Prussia is almost next door. So pretty soon, quarrels between the two developed. Austria suspected Bismarck is just waiting to gobble up the whole thing. And Austria was right. Bismarck was gearing up for war. But instead of doing anything to counter Bismarck's designs, like, for example, going to the Concert of Europe, uh, getting it to lean on Prussia, Austria simply groused and groused and groused. Russia, remember, is out of play. Britain is asleep. It's preoccupied with its own domestic reforms and, of course, with empire. France was the only remaining obstacle, and Bismarck was determined to neutralize France. Now, France at this time is ruled by the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. The Revolution of 1848 had brought democratic elections to France, and the first thing the French had done when they got a chance to elect their president was to vote for the only name that meant anything to them on the ballot, Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte. When Louis-Napoleon's term of office, four years, good term, expired, he refused to go. <laughs> he engineered a coup d'etat and simply said, I'm now Emperor Napoleon III. Napoleon II never lived to grow up, so he's Napoleon III. And since he owed his title to force, Napoleon was always seeking prestige in foreign affairs, uh, somehow or other to support his popularity. In 1866, Bismarck met with Napoleon, and he succeeded in convincing him that France could really profit from a war between Prussia and Austria. How so? France could use the opportunity when everybody else's attention was elsewhere to ooh, take over Belgium and maybe even uh, Luxembourg and perhaps up the Rhine. Who knows? Bismarck reassured Napoleon that Prussia's war aims would be absolutely minimal. And this reassurance probably wasn't as important as Napoleon, who wasn't stupid, his own military calculations. Like most contemporaries, he simply assumed Austria was the larger power. Uh, it's bigger, it's stronger, and actually in the Danish war, its army had performed much more effectively than Prussia's. 
also he's looking at Prussia's domestic situation, the constitutional conflict. It looks as if Prussia's about to collapse into revolution and disintegrate. But secondly, even if Austria couldn't defeat Prussia, Napoleon assumed any war would take a long time and give France a chance to expand relatively. After dealing with Napoleon, Bismarck turned to Italy. Italy was a natural ally of Prussia's because Italy's main foe was Austria. Italy had only recently been unified itself in a war with Austria in 1859, and there's still large hunks of Italy that were not yet under uh, control. Venetia, for example, belongs to Austria-Hungary. Uh, the area around Rome, the Papal States, are still not part of the new Italy. April 8, 1866, Bismarck negotiates an offensive alliance against Austria, fellow member of the German Confederation, with the Italians, absolutely secret. But he promises the Italians the area around Venice if Austria is defeated. Now, the terms of this agreement were stringent and extremely risky. The new Italy is a very small uh, and vulnerable state. It's got a lot to lose. If Prussia starts a war with Austria, the Italians agreed to come to her aid if the war took place within the next three months. At the end of three months' time, all bets were off. The alliance was automatically expired. So what Bismarck has done is tied his own hands. He had only three months with which to provoke a war. And it's characteristic of his statesmanship that he didn't believe that just increasing the bickering over the administration of Schleswig-Holstein would be a suitable cause for war. Why not? Everybody knew, inside Germany and out, that Prussia had no legal claim to these territories. He needed an important ideological issue. He wanted to tie his quarrel with Austria to the forces of liberalism and nationalism. He wanted to put Austria in a bad light internationally and, in German opinion, as a reactionary power. Therefore, he had Prussia sponsor a reform of the German Confederation, so radical, so democratic, that Austria couldn't accept it. On April 9th, the day after signing the aggressive pact with Italy, you would say the ink was scarcely dry, Bismarck instructed Prussia's ambassador to the German Confederation to introduce a bill that would change this diet from a kind of security council with ambassadors all talking together and each one having a veto to a parliament that could legislate for all the German people, regardless of what state they lived in. And this parliament would be elected by universal manhood suffrage, the most democratic franchise of its day. Moreover, the Prussian ambassador was instructed to couple his bill with an ultimatum. If the German Confederation refused a democratic reform, Prussia would withdraw from the Confederation, and that would be tantamount to war. Well, when the press got hold of this uh, motion, it created a sensation. The conservatives said, what's this? Democracy? We put this guy in power for this? Liberals, on the other hand, didn't believe a word of it. They thought it was just a trick. 
Austria read the handwriting on the wall and began mobilizing its army immediately. At that point, King William got nervous. He insisted Bismarck withdraw the ultimatum. The last thing the king wanted was a war with a fellow conservative state. But Bismarck argued back with a cock and bull story that the Austrians are about to attack. If Austria mobilizes, we've got to mobilize. The other states in the German Confederation tried their best to preserve the peace, and they demanded that both of the two German great powers demobilize. Austria began to comply. King William breathed a sigh of relief. Bismarck's plan was off. But here is where the Italian alliance proved to be crucial to him because the Italian army moved up into the Venetian region. The Austrians then had to mobilize to defend their territory. And Bismarck could say, look, they're tricking you. And a reluctant William gave the order to go ahead. So war was on. Now, this was not, as most textbooks say, a Prussian-Austrian war. It was, in fact, a civil war of Prussia against almost the entire German Confederation. Only the green states in Germany are neutral. Everybody else is on the side either of Austria or the ones right next to Prussia are sort of forced to be uh, with Prussia. Where is Europe in all of this? It's twiddling its thumbs. Uh, there was a general feeling in Europe that the two German powers are so evenly matched that it's going to be a stalemate, nothing much is going to happen. In fact, the war was over in six weeks. General von Moltke defeated the Austrians at the Battle of Königsgrätz in Bohemia, and the Austrians sued for peace. Now, this made the war look like a walkover. Yet the decisive battle at Königsgrätz was a very near thing. As one of his high officers told Bismarck, if the crown prince's army had arrived six hours later, the Austrians would have won. And then the consequences would have been momentous. Certainly, it would have toppled Bismarck. It might well have caused the abdication of King William. This, in turn, would have meant the victory for the liberals in the Prussian constitutional conflict. And that would have certainly put a halt to Prussian expansion. Bismarck was aware of the risks he was taking. He kept a loaded revolver at his side the whole time. It is a liberal fallacy that wars never solve anything. Königsgrätz is one of the great turning points in history. First of all, it ended the Prussian constitutional conflict. Bismarck actually submitted an indemnity bill to Parliament asking liberals to forgive him admitting that he had broken the Constitution. He admits it now for the first time. He pretended he hadn't earlier. In return for admitting guilt and promising that he would never, ever uh, govern without the Constitutional again, uh, they should forgive him, and they did. The real turning point, however, number two, is international. The German Confederation was destroyed. Most of the German independent states north of the River Mine, who had fought on Austria's side, just get annexed to Prussia, and the others are summarily forced to join a new confederation known as the North German Confederation. South of the River Main, uh, Bavaria, Baden, and Württemberg are forced to sign secret military alliances with Prussia. And so this big, loose, non-ethnically defined German confederation, once dominated by Austria and the forces of particularism, is replaced by a smaller uh, tighter, 
uh, North German Confederation, with Austria excluded, dominated by Prussia. And here is the truly modern element. This North German Confederation is given a single national institution, a democratically elected parliament known as a Reichstag. All males equally vote for it. Domestically, this battle of Königsbretz also brought three radical changes to the Habsburg monarchy. It now pushed Austria out of Germany permanently, though Hitler briefly reversed this when he annexed Austria in 1938. Secondly, not surprisingly, Habsburg attentions shift east toward the Balkans, particularly the Christian nationalities who are rebelling against Turkish rule. And Austria is given the Ottoman Empire's Bosnia-Herzegovina only 12 years later to administer. Now, Austria's shift of attention away from Germany and Italy and its rivalry with Prussia towards the east isn't necessarily aggressive, but it does bring her into latent conflict with Russia, which also has Balkan interests, and so sets in motion a train of events that lead us to August 1914. Within the Habsburg monarchy, the government's credibility was so weakened that it was forced to make a deal with the largest non-German group in the empire, the Hungarians, and virtually concede Hungarian autonomy. This was done in an agreement known as the Compromise Ausgleich of 1867. This Compromise of 1867 became the constitutional basis for the Habsburg monarchy until it was dissolved in 1918. Under this compromise, the very name of the state is changed from Habsburg monarchy to dual monarchy or simply Austria-Hungary. The only thing the two halves have in common are a postal system, the currency, and a foreign policy. And even that foreign policy has to be negotiated with the Hungarians having an equal say. But the most faithful result of the Ausgleich is not giving uh, the Hungarians a de facto veto over Austrian trade policy or Austrian foreign affairs, so much as giving them a complete free hand in their own, uh, quote, unquote, domestic affairs. Now, this sounds very liberal and very progressive. Why shouldn't the Hungarians be given a free hand in their own affairs? Uh, fine if all the population are Hungarians but only 47% of the population are Hungarians, and most of the peasantry are not. They are Slovaks, Croats, Slovenes, Ruthenes, Romanians, and Serbs. So the Ausgleich, the compromise, turns over all of these people to the tender mercies of the Hungarian aristocracy, just at the point in which the aristocracy is determined to make all of this a nation state. And they immediately begin a program of intensive Hungarianization to change these Slavs into Hungarians. So Bismarck's ethnicization of the German lands stimulates an ethnicization of the Habsburg monarchy, and this is a mortgage on the future. Now, it's all too easy to assume that just because Bismarck had succeeded so far, this German nation state is inevitable. But though he's got military alliances with the three major South German states, these were forced on them. And they were clearly going to wiggle out of them the moment Austria recovered. And all Austria would have to do is find some ally like Russia or France or Britain. 
So a change in the overall international constellation uh, could have made this whole solution Bismarck had settled uh, unravel. And in order to prevent this, alliances were not enough. Bismarck needed to bring the South German states into his new state. But the South Germans showed no sign that they wanted to become Prussians on their own. Newspapers in the South wrote about the Prussian victory at Königsgrätz as murder. Prussians weren't praised for unifying Germany, but blamed for the Civil War, for dividing the fatherland. And it was clear that had they got any opportunity at all, they would join Austria and break away from any alliance with Prussia. So far from peaceful unification becoming inevitable after 1866, it became increasingly clear that the only way Bismarck was going to get the South German states into his confederation was to stage another war. But in this day and age, more and more democracy, he couldn't go to war against these major German states. That would bring in the great powers. He needed to go to war with them, with his Prussian troops fighting shoulder to shoulder with those of South Germany against a common enemy. And what better way to arouse their fears than Germany's traditional foe, Napoleon, France. So let's turn our attention to the third of Bismarck's wars with France. Luring France into a war was much less difficult than luring Austria in. Napoleon belatedly realized that letting Prussia expand at Austria's expense had shifted the balance of power in Europe against France. France has been defeated at Königsgrätz, he said. So he tried to make the best of a bad situation by trying to collect on Bismarck's promises of territory, asking, uh, how about Luxembourg, uh, hinting at Belgium. And Bismarck's response was straight double-cross. He leaked Napoleon's overtures for territories to all the German newspapers, made no mention of his own role in it, and he'd been careful that nothing he had ever said was put into writing, unlike Napoleon. Immediately, Germans said, how dare France annex or try to annex one foot of German soil? And, of course, here's a contemporary uh, cartoon. Now, here's a... Here's uh, Napoleon coming to collect, and Bismarck says, what do you mean collect? You know, we're not giving out anything for free here. The South Germans were encouraged to think that this Napoleon was just like his uncle. If he wouldn't be stopped, they'd be next. And so it became clear that if Napoleon made any attempt to collect on his bargain with Bismarck at this late date, it would mean war with Germany. So Napoleon backed down. France suffered a national humiliation. And the French government began to get very, very jittery about this new German colossus. And a Cold War developed after 1866. And I think it's fair to say that both governments are itching to turn the Cold War into a hot one. But Bismarck still had a problem with the king. His king was a man of peace. In 1868, however, a situation in Spain developed that allowed Bismarck to put the king in a more warlike frame of mind. In 1868, the Spanish kicked out their monarch, and the provisional Spanish government uh, and the Spanish parliament went shopping for a new ruler. And in those days, you just got a king from somewhere else, and they chose 
Prince Leopold of Hohenzollern in the southern branch, the Catholic branch of the King of Prussia's family. Now we know Bismarck paid a good deal of money to Spanish parliamentarians to influence their selection. When France heard that Leopold of Hohenzollern might become the next king of Spain, the French hit the ceiling. They became hysterical. They started talking about encirclement. They referred to Charles V, the Habsburg emperor of long, long ago. And in view of this international tension, Leopold then said, thank you, no, uh, and thought it was all over. He considered this a private matter. But Bismarck began secretly negotiating with the Spanish leadership to get them to offer the throne to him again. And he assured them this time he could make sure Leopold would accept. This too got leaked to the French press, and they accused Prussia of being behind the whole thing. In fact, this is a paranoid guess. There was no evidence that Prussia was behind it. Even King William didn't know Bismarck was behind it. But sometimes paranoids are suspicious for good reason. In July 1870, the French ambassador, uh, here's Leopold, Benedetti, traveled to the spa Bad Ems where King William was vacationing and appealed to him as head of the Hohenzollern dynasty to get Leopold to withdraw his candidacy in the interests of peace. And after much coaxing, William agreed. And all Europe thought France had won a huge prestige victory. But at this point, the French pressed their luck, and the French government demanded Benedetti go back and get a personal guarantee from King William that the Hohenzollern candidacy for Spanish throne would never be reopened. And at this point, the old guy got miffed. It seemed like his good faith was being doubted, and he said, you know, I can't promise anything for the huge indefinite future. That afternoon, he sent Bismarck a telegram reporting what happened, a perfectly honest, matter-of-fact statement, not particularly alarmist. The telegraph found Bismarck eating dinner with his generals. They were all sunk in gloom because it appeared the war they so wanted was slipping out of their hands. But then Bismarck snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. He skillfully edited the king's telegrams, crossed out some of the words, and made it look as if Benedetti had deliberately accosted the king, insulted him, and if the, as if the king had, in effect, shown him the door, as if diplomatic relations had been broken off. In those days, that was tantamount to war. Bismarck then sent this doctored telegram to his foreign office with instructions, leak it to the press. And a fury of international indignation swept both countries. Napoleon was now in a corner uh, the French press were uh, French people were demonstrating in the streets, war, war, war. He had to either declare war or suffer such a humiliation he feared for his throne. Consequently, in July 1870, the French declare war on the Germans, the North German Confederation. The consequence, all of Europe considers France the aggressor, and France had no allies. There was no attempt to intervene by the concert of Europe. Here we see Bismarck's great skill in isolating his opponent. The decisive battle, the Battle of Sedan, was over in three weeks. Napoleon's army was encircled. He abdicated. France became a republic once again. And by 1871, 
conceded Prussia's victory. The fighting tipped the very close balance of sentiment in South Germany towards Union, and when the question was put to a vote, a very, very slight majority of South Germans voted yes. They're still afraid of the French. And so in January 1871, Bismarck and all the German princes at the head of the occupying Prussian army go into Versailles to the Hall of Mirrors of Louis XIV and proclaim the German Empire. At the same time, Germany annexes Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, these had been members of the Holy Roman Empire, which Louis XIV had grabbed. Uh, they were mostly German-speaking, or Alsace was German-speaking. Lorraine was partly French and partly German. Now, the French would have certainly annexed broad swaths of the Rhineland had they won, but this was considered horrible throughout uh, Europe. Long uh, decades later, the economist John Maynard Keynes said, well, actually, coal and iron was as important here as blood and iron. And he pointed to the fact that Prussia had the most natural resources, the most modernized economy, and had already brought most of the Germans together in a single market known as the Customs Union. But we should ask ourselves, would this coal and iron have been sufficient if the German, the Prussian army had lost the Battle of Königsgrätz? Or if the French army had encircled the Prussian army at the Battle of Sedan in 1870 rather than the reverse? If that had happened, would this Prussian customs union have lasted another month? Well, uh, that's a question you can think about. Is military power more important or economic power? Uh, we can maybe talk about that in the future. <laughs>